Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. History taught in Western schools can have a nasty habit of losing sight of the bigger picture. Occasionally events and groups that fall outside of the geographic scope of Europe and North America, or even just on the fringes, are only brought in when they directly affect more traditional players. One of the most common offenders of this is the Ottoman Empire. Holding land in Europe, Asia, and Africa, and existing for over 400 years, it's most often brought up in the context of being an ineffective ally of Germany and Austria-Hungary in the First World War. So who were the Ottomans, and what were they up to for the other four centuries that they held power? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Phil Downey. Hey. And today we're going to be talking about the Ottoman Empire. I'm really excited to do this one. This is one of those topics that like we talk about the Ottomans and this region in the world in general so much in other topics that uh, these come along once in a time, once in a while where we're just going to fill in a whole bunch of blanks as we go through this one. It's going to feel really, really good. It's going to have a lot of like aha moments. And I'm really looking forward to that. When we were brainstorming for this, I'm like, you know, who like shows up a lot in all of these episodes and literally everything I ever look into mm -hmm. in history, the Turks. Yeah. Sup with them Turks, yo. Yeah, what's going on there? <laughs> and, and and for good reason. I mean, that region of the world, specifically the, you know, right where Istanbul is, is located, uh, traditionally like a crossing between like Europe and Asia, uh, has been hotly contested for a long time. It's geographically important. It's politically important. There's been a lot of different people moving through there at various points in time. And so it's it's almost inevitable that whoever ends up there like located there physically is going to be a major player in a lot of different uh, stories. Uh, and if they're not, they're probably going to get steamrolled by someone who is. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of interesting stuff uh, for, for this whole ride. So let's jump right into it. Um, mostly because I'm really excited to tell you this. The Turks and, and let's, let's keep in mind, we're talking about two different things uh, between like the Ottoman Turks and Turkish people in general, right? Because it's more of like a, a linguistic ethnic group uh, mm. when we're talking about Turkish peoples because they originate as nomadic Asian steppe horse archers. Well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and I know you're a fan. Yeah. We, we might have done an episode on those once. In general, what we're talking about here is that there were a lot of different nomadic uh, uh, tribes living in uh, this, this region of, of what's now Russia where their livelihoods are tied to their horses. They do a lot of actual traveling, following various herds of various things that they live off of. And they learn to use bows off the back of horses really effectively. 
Um, and they were incredibly infuriating for a lot of the European armies that they would come across because uh, of, of a very specific move where basically they would pretend that they were being routed by these soldiers. The European soldiers would break uh, ranks and run after them to try and like actually decisively win the battle. And they'd just turn around in their saddles and start shooting backwards <laughs> off the horses and decimate these armies. Yeah. And it took them a long time to figure out how to deal with that. They did eventually, but it was a point of frustration for a very long time. The earliest confirmed use of the word Turk specifically uh, appears in a, a letter in 585 CE. Um, it's a letter to the, the Chinese emperor, uh, Wen, and it's describing it's describing a, uh, the leader of a group called the Gok Turks, uh, Ishbara Kagan, and it calls him the Great Turk Khan. And notice we're going to use some really similar stuff to um, uh, the Mongolians when we're talking mm -hmm. about them because they're very similar people actually in a lot of ways. They're not Mongols, but in terms of like using them as a comparison, it's really helpful for very early Turkish peoples. I mean, um, they're both nomadic equestrian steppe traditions. Uh, they actually shared a, a religion, at least at first. It's called Tengrism. Mm. And this is the religion that uh, actually um, Genghis Khan would, uh, would practice. Uh, it's a Siberian uh, shamanistic tradition. So they worship like a sky deity, but it's, it's very like... Um, it's been it's been replaced uh, by by a lot of different things now. It still exists. There's quite a few practitioners actually, but uh, that that religion was shared between the two groups. Um, they both developed unique writing systems. I don't know if you've ever seen written Mongolian. I haven't. Uh, it still exists to this day, and it's not it's not the way that you would look at Russian and go like, oh, this is a mix of like Latin and Greek. Like it's it's got its own flavor to it. The Turks did the same. Eventually, they would abandon it for more common writing systems, but they had one at one point. Um, and they also both had this property of sort of extended contact with classically powerful civilizations while still managing to maintain uh, uh, some cultural independence. Obviously, they'd be shaped by these contacts, but would still uh, uh, remain definitively like their own culture. Uh, specifically, we're talking about India and China, mm -hmm. um, the way that, you know, the Mongols, they kind of took on some Chinese characteristics, uh, but they remained distinctly Mongolian. The Turks would do the same. There's other really early... There's other even earlier uses of the word Turk that are just kind of like not confirmed. It might be people like reaching a little bit too much. Mm. Uh, in fact, Pliny the Elder in the first century CE describes a group named the the Tirse uh, near the Sea of Azov. And the Sea of Azov is is um, you know kind of uh, above the Black Sea. That's where like Crimea is okay, yeah. now. Um, that that bridge that Russia just built between Crimea and Russia, mm -hmm. uh, that crosses the strait between the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. Okay. So that gives you an idea of where we're talking about. And that's as close to sort of an area that they came from, I'm using scare quotes, <laughs> as we can really get from a, a civilization that doesn't really develop writing for a, a several centuries into its into its existence. But um, they're, you know, they end up growing uh, and spreading across that entire Asian region um, throughout what today would be uh, China, Mongolia, Russia, uh, a bunch of those former Soviet states. Like anything ending in Stan probably had uh, Turkish people in it at some point. So uh, Uzbekistan, uh, Kazakhstan, all of those regions. Mm -hmm. 
as well as the the Middle East and Eastern Europe. So they extended into the Balkan territories. They extended down into well, what today would be uh, Iran, uh, Iraq, uh, even um, Arabia to some extent. So really quite widely spread. And each of these groups are going to be culturally distinct from each other. They're just sharing somewhat of a, a, a common language and some common heritage, right? So there would be two groups that we could call Turkish, you know, one in China and one in, you know, what was uh, or uh, what is now Albania. And they're going to be very different people, right? Yeah. But they're going to have this shared tradition. There's also a lot of issues with conflating them with uh, other groups. Um, for example, the Huns, i.e. Attila, the mm -hmm. ones that attacked the Roman Empire, they might have been Turkish. I mean, we don't really know. Um, a big problem with prehistoric groups um, like the period that we're talking about here is that all of the writings that we get about them are from outsiders. Yeah. And so a lot of the information that we're going to get is um, certainly inaccurate and possibly made up in some cases. Like you'll have these groups who kind of look similar and so they just make stuff up about them that they, you know, since they seem similar in one aspect, they must be similar in all others. So we don't really know where the Huns came from. We don't really know what they spoke. We don't really know you know, a lot about them. And maybe they were Turkish, maybe they weren't, we're not really sure. Sometimes when we talk about the Silk Road, we talk about raiders along the Silk Road, right? The fact that one of the one of the biggest challenges to moving these goods um, from Asia to Europe, and you know, that's kind of a an abstract concept, but still, is these is these raiders that would attack along the Silk Road. Those were almost always Turkish. Hmm. These are the people that we're talking about. Uh, when we sort of vaguely refer to groups, you know, raiding along the Silk Road, that's probably them. This is where they lived. Um, and, you know, a lot of these groups will get quite wealthy off of this, uh, either that or, or, you know, charging tolls and things like that, uh, allowing traders through their lands. Um, so this kind of gives you a bit of an idea of who they were. Um, I hate the word originally, but, you know, let's let's use it for our purposes. Yeah, this is the... The predecessors to, or the, yeah. Yeah, predecessors works. That, yeah. These sure. are the, sort of the origin stories of this group of people. Precursor, maybe? There you go. That's the word That's I was looking, word for. looking for. Yes, nailed it. Various Turkish dynasties come and go over these periods that we're just, we don't have the time to talk about, nor the information to talk about responsibly. So we're going to sort of skip over a lot of them. Um, one thing I will mention, though, is that the Turks were one of the first non-Arabic groups to be converted to Islam. Mm. Uh, beginning in the 8th century, um, Islamic emissaries uh, began converting Turkish peoples to, to Islam, and they actually took to it quite, uh, 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 quite a bit. Um, and and it, they, they would quickly become uh, a fairly large uh, population of, of Muslims. Do we know why the Turks seem to be predisposed to converting to islam we don't know a ton about this other than because it's all coming from the the side of these uh muslim uh, uh missionaries for mm. lack of a better term a lot of the spread of of islam at this point in time was very much um you know either you adopt our uh, uh religion or we go to war and uh as single um sort of groups of turks along the way they weren't terribly powerful compared to um relatively advanced uh, Muslim armies. So it may have just been a matter of self-preservation. That but, makes sense. But as a group, um, they also, the, the Turks tended to be fairly 
willing to pick things up from other cultures. That's part of what helps them survive this contact with, you know, Indian empires and Chinese empires is they would go, well, this is useful. Let's take it. Mm. Uh, but we're still Turks. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the adoption rate was partially self-preservation, partially, well, we kind of like this thing actually. In Anatolia specifically, and Anatolia is, um, the part of Turkey that we would call like the Asian part. Okay. So if you look at modern Turkey today, there's like a little tiny triangle, uh, Istanbul and West. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's the, the, uh, Dardanelles, the, the strait that moves from the Black Sea to the, uh, to the Mediterranean. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the big almost rectangle. That's the Asian part. Yeah. That Asian part is known as Anatolia. Okay. There's a group in Anatolia, um, known as the Seljuk Turks who managed to establish, establish themselves, um, actually originally in Persia. Um, so modern day Iran in the 11th century. And once they managed to kind of take over, uh, you know, traditional Iran, they managed to consolidate enough power that they, uh, came into conflict with the Byzantine empire. A lot of times when we talk about early Turks, we talk about them in the context of the Byzantine empire because of this sort of Western centric idea of, of, of history. I mean, um, Several years ago, I did a topic entirely on the fall of Constantinople in 1453, all from the perspective of the Byzantines, of course. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to talk about the other side now. Um, these are the people who, um, you know, when the Byzantine Empire is at its height, these are the raiders on their borders that they're concerned about maintaining sort of their, their territorial sovereignty um, from. These are the, the challengers to that power. Um, by sort of the mid-11th century, um, they they start actually managing to match the Byzantine power, uh, the Byzantine Empire in power in terms of military strength, and to the point where it uh, they actually uh, defeat the Byzantine Empire at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, and it's such a disastrous loss for the Byzantine Empire that the Byzantines lose most of Anatolia to the Seljuk Turks. Um, uh, control after this battle. So what between being uh, nomadic step archers, horse, horse, nomadic step horse archers. Yeah. There's a lot of adjectives. Sure is. Uh, w what gets them between that and actually forming like a military presence that's actually taking on a fairly formidable nation? So when you look at the takeover of the Seljuk Turks in Iran, what you have is um, a fairly ill Iranian uh, political structure that a group of Turks managed to take over. And the Turks have been learning over the centuries, um, kind of cherry picking the best of the best in terms of political systems, military systems, all of this. Um, they take over Iran and basically go, this is still Iran, but now it's Turkish Iran. Oh, so they just said, this is ours now. Basically. I mean, it's, it's far more complicated than that, obviously, yeah. but we're not talking about the Seljuks today. Uh, we're talking about the Ottomans. So, mm -hmm. um, so what they end up doing is this is, this is Iran attacking the Byzantine empire. But, um, I also don't want to give the impression that it's, it's not, um, largely due to, uh, Turkish influence and power that this becomes successful. I mean, Iran didn't manage to do this while they were, um, you know, a, a previous iteration of Iran. Mm -hmm. um, this sort of invigoration by this new powerful group of Turks is what uh, allowed them to uh, become so successful. 
they tend to be, I, I, I hate making like very general uh, uh, statements like this about entire groups of people for obvious reasons, but often what happens when the Turks take something over, they tend to bring a lot of innovation to it. Mm. There tends to be a lot of like, okay, uh, this exists, there's good things about it and there's bad things about it. Let's, uh, let's throw out all the bad things. Let's keep all the good things. Let's make this distinctly Turkish in, in flavor and try to, um, you know, anywhere where we don't have something positive of our own to plug in where there was something bad, let's shop around and find out what other people are doing and do the best thing. Um, there's a lot of flexibility uh, to their ruling style, uh, most spots that I see, at least at, in this period. They're scrappy, I guess mm. you could say. And and so the, the Seljuk dynasty is... Definitely Iranian, but also definitely Turkish in nature. Um, and they're looking at the Byzantine Empire going like, wow, they've been around here forever. They're very powerful. But mm, we could be more powerful. We could take them. Yep. By the end of the 11th century, you know, infighting and succession issues had led to <laughs> the division of Anatolia. So, I mean, the Seljuks aren't like powerful forever. I mean, yeah. this is this is always an issue with these um, these groups that uh, consist of like fairly small uh kind of prime units yeah when strong leaders are lost then uh it becomes more uh, more difficult to keep them together uh, and that's often the test of a good um empire is whether or not it can survive even the first succession because that's usually where it falls apart mm -hmm. um and seljuk turks did not manage to do a great job of that but they still held a lot of territory when we talk about the first and second crusades the Seljuk Turks are the other side. Of I was just going to ask, are we, is this uh, Saladin's people? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They own uh, a lot of um, uh, land in um, the Levant. They own a lot of land in, in Iran, Iraq, uh, um, the Arabian Peninsula. These are the people that um, the Europeans look at and go like, whoa, we can't tolerate them holding it because the people who held it before this were the Byzantines. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the progression of that area in a nutshell is it goes it goes from ownership under the Roman Empire to ownership under the Byzantine Empire, which let's remember is not a change. Yeah. It's just a development. Um, these people wouldn't know what you were talking about if you said Byzantine Empire. This is still the Roman Empire to them. It's just the Eastern Roman Empire. It's just gone on. It's just undergone a lot of changes over the years. Um, so it wouldn't really look the same as, you know. Uh, what somebody from the actual city of Rome in the second century would expect. They're speaking Greek. They have a different religion, all of this stuff, but it's still under their control. They lose all this control uh, to the Seljuk Turks, and this kicks off the first and second uh, crusades. That's who they're going to look uh, to take it back from. I always kind of wondered when I was much younger, like, well, why did it take them till the 11th century to go on crusade? Um, you know, if, if they're trying to take back this land, well, the fact is that they only lost it in the 11th century. Yeah. As far as, uh, uh, Europeans were, were concerned, this is the first that they, they saw it as being in, uh, quote unquote enemy hands by the mid 12th century or so, uh, the Seljuk Turks had completely disappeared. All of their land had reverted to fairly small, uh, almost family-centric uh, control. Uh, you had kind of small... Uh, tribes isn't quite the right word, but it kind of conveys what I'm looking for here. Mm -hmm. In Anatolia specifically, which is where we're trying to focus here, right? That's where the, uh, the Ottomans are going to end up holding most of their power. 
um, there's a, a group called the Sultanate of Rum had split off, and they kind of remained a thorn in the side of Byzantium until um, about 1243 or so. This time first of all let's let's uh let's address the name room was the turkish word for greek mm. because it's uh <laughs> it's interesting because it's actually progressed from the word for rome i was gonna ask <laughs> yes but at this point in time who they called romans were speaking greek yeah which is kind of a weird little linguistic shift mm -hmm. these people remain such a thorn in the side of the, Byz the byzantines in terms of like constantly needling them constantly requiring um troops to be uh, uh diverted to cover those borders because they continually just attacked and attacked and attacked to the point where it, it weakened the byzantine empire quite a bit except in 1243 uh there's a battle called uh, the battle of coast dog not between the byzantines and the uh turks but between the mongols and the turks this is when uh, the Golden Horde is rolling through Europe. And in a lot of ways, the Byzantine Empire is saved from the Mongolians by this buffer between them and the Mongolians, uh, the Turks, who get absolutely destroyed in this battle. Yikes. Yeah. Don't mess with the Mongols. No, 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 not at all. Uh, this uh, There's a short period of time where there's some Mongolian rule in the in the area, but they're really overextended at this point, and they end up uh, withdrawing after, uh, after a, a few decades. By 1300, the Seljuk dynasty in Anatolia is completely gone. Within all this upset... Um, so wait, who's, who's in charge in Anatolia now then? It's all these little tiny pockets of... Some areas they're Turks, some areas they're remnants of Mongolians who just don't really have a connection to the larger Mongolian dynasty. They've sort of taken over as local warlords. Sometimes it's Greeks mm. uh, so or So it just kind of fractured into a bunch of smaller little yeah. areas. Yeah, yeah. for, for lack, lack of a better, better word. word. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, keep in mind that we're not... We're so used to maps having a hard line, right? This isn't really yeah, of course. the situation for a very long time. And and I think that the situation in Anatolia illustrates that uh, as well as any as well as any other, because there's just sort of mm, hazy heat maps of power yeah, that sometimes just gonna say it's like power consolidation, and if you can keep yours, you get to have that area until you can't defend it. Yeah, yeah. There's there's sort of a there's sort of a fuzzy line somewhere where you know one one year one group can control it a little better, and the next year another does, and that's a really bad place to live. And mm -hmm. hey, if you leave, live right in the middle of one of those heat maps, things are at least a little more stable until you know one of them becomes much much bigger. Yeah. Um, nobody's gonna see this as a as a thing for a very long time, which is why we don't know a lot about it. But around 1299 or so in the northwest ver uh, region of Anatolia, so right up where that crossing is uh, at the Dardanelles, it's known today as Bithynia. Um, Osman I, a Turk, uh, founds a new... Uh, it's a polity. It's a, it's a new faction of Turks. Okay. And... We don't know a lot about Osman uh, because, again, he's just another one of dozens of these Turkish warlords, right? Um, but Osman is actually Osman is actually what we're going to name the Ottoman Empire after. This is the this is the founding moment of this uh, of this dynasty, and we don't even know if twelve ninety nine is exactly the right year. Interesting. It's it just, just kind of pops up out of nowhere then, or well, because who is keeping track? Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, it's one of those things where if they um, 
you know, the, the writing records were sometimes a little bit spotty. And if they weren't keeping their own records, then eh, hopefully somebody else talked about it. And if not, <laughs> well, we're going off of basically traditions. I mean, yeah, Osman is even the first uh, of, of his dynasty that we can actually confirm existed. I mean, it, there's there's stories about who his father was, but nobody really knows because he wasn't an important person. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing Osman did some things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's he's starting a new polity in what is arguably the most volatile part of Anatolia because it's right up on the borders of the Byzantine Empire, which is still formidable. It's lost a lot of influence over the years. There's there's a lot of issues with the Byzantine Empire that we could get into. There's um, really kind of stagnant political issues going on. There's a lot of like uh, famine going on. There's a lot of there's a lot of warfare on a lot of different fronts. The Byzantine Empire kind of overextended a little bit, and they were they were tired, um, for lack of a better word. I mean, like they were they were as as a so as an old. empire. Yeah, they they were <laughs> no longer innovating. They were no longer growing. There was a lot of stagnation there. They were still powerful, mm. and Osman founds this uh, polity in sort of the kiln of this situation i mean he comes up from obscurity fighting the byzantines and he's you know he's turkish and islamic in origin but he's a little bit less tribal than a lot of these other groups um he's a little bit more organized the thing that makes him different is that he's looking at taking leaders on merit versus uh just family connection or favor basically um he's basically looking at this situation going like okay well the only way you can actually beat the byzantines is by being better than the byzantines and the only way that you get better than the byzantines is actually build a good army and build a good uh political structure um you can't just kind of do things the traditional way that hasn't worked out for our people how many times and just expect it to be expected to work this time um which is a reasonable conclusion i would say mm-hmm. um not only that though he also was willing to take on non-Turkish people into his government, which was ah. a big deal, including Greeks at some points, because there are some very competent people from the Byzantine Empire that, for a multitude of reasons, are more than willing to work for the enemies of the Byzantine Empire. And hey, if they're good, why not? In fact, there's a lot of really valuable, potentially valuable information that you can get from somebody who knows that system from the inside. Why not exploit that? Yeah, sure. Defectors are great. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah. <laughs> For the people who uh, aren't the defectees, I'm not sure how to conjugate that. I'd say that's right. Yeah, it, it, sounds, right it sounds right. It might not be, <laughs> but it sounds like it. No, no, no. I think we're probably good on that one. Yeah, people know what you mean. Yeah. He used the Seljuk Empire as a model for government, which is an interesting move because you'd think like, oh, this this uh, this government that's like literally a couple of years away from being over maybe not the best model but he looked at it and went okay well this isn't their government model isn't the thing that destroyed them what destroyed them is their lack of a meritocracy really mm. it's the it's the people that they actually plugged into the system so in a roundabout way what he's doing is basing an, uh, a government on the old iranian models or the persian models sorry um which that's a pretty old empire like they've been doing things for a long time there's been changeovers and dynasties sure but sure persian empire is pretty big at one point they they know a thing or two about ruling yeah and then really interestingly he mandated this is 
baked right into his government from the founding. He mandated that succession does not involve division of the empire. Because what ruined the Seljuks and many other Turkish groups is you rule this giant parcel of land. You have, I don't know, five sons. All five get a fifth of the empire. That's never worked out. (laughs) Three or four generations down the line, there's very little land left. Yeah. I mean... We've we've done enough we've done enough episodes on power struggles uh, when it comes to succession to know that fracturing your state never really goes well for the former state. Mm-hmm. Well, and it took two hundred years for the Seljuk Turks to mm-hmm. take a massive empire and turn it into the, all these tiny little pockets, right? Yeah, it was gone. It was just carved up. And he went, "That's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do that." So he instituted a, a rule that the succession goes only to the firstborn male heir. That's how you do it. And you give them the entire thing because that's the only way that it lasts. The Mongolians had done the same thing, right? I mean, he had plenty of models of how this goes poorly. Yeah. Uh, enough to know that this isn't the best way to make all of this work. Interestingly enough, in 1324, uh, when Osman dies, this is, as we said earlier, kind of the real test of whether or not things are going to go well for uh, a new empire or not. Uh, the transfer of power to his son, uh, Orhan, and it went smoothly. Nice. Orhan took the entire uh, polity over. He uh, then moved into a strengthening phase. He continued fighting the Byzantines, but he also started moving uh, east and south as well, taking over all these little pockets of other Turkish yeah, groups. Consolidating. Well, you basically go, hey, you want to join our very good, very successful empire? Well, you know what? I think maybe I do. Well, and the thing is, anyone who goes like, a sword to your throat. Nah, nah, I think I'm good. It's like, okay, uh, give me six months. I'll be back in the spring uh, with a lot of friends, and we'll try, <laughs> we'll try convincing you again. Uh, and and he he really expanded the territory quite a bit. Um, he he does something really interesting, which is he manages to secure all passages from Europe to Anatolia. So he cuts off all places that the Byzantines could move troops from uh, their European territory into uh, their their Asian territory. Interesting. And that's really where the the root of the uh, power of the Ottomans comes from, is basically going like, okay, we're going to be the bulwark here. You can't come any further. This is our land now. Because before it was fairly easy for them to kind of sail troops in. Sure. Um, they took over all the landings uh, on the sort of west coast of Anatolia, made sure that there was nowhere friendly for the, the Byzantines to land troops. And this is in a lot of ways the beginning of the end. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good thing. <laughs> uh, it's great for the Ottomans. Yeah. Um, but it also kind of shows to the other um, Turkish groups in the area that like the Ottomans actually mean business, not only for their own gains, but also in sort of a they're acting as the protector of all Turks in this action. Now, did, were they being called the Ottomans at the time? Is this a name we bestowed on them later? Um, that's a great question. I'm not sure when they started using it themselves. The name Ottoman is derived from Osman's name. I wondered. Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure when they first would have called themselves Ottomans. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be a good one to know. Yeah. The next century or, sh- or so shows uh, or sees... Ottoman raiding into um, the European holdings of of Byzantium. So raids, especially into Hungary and Serbia, that whole sort of 
Balkan area of, of Europe was all held by the Byzantines, but that is perpetually going to be an area of, of some conflict uh, in Europe. I mean, right up until a couple of decades ago, and, and I'm not going to pretend that anything's gonna, over there. That's still a pretty hostile say, area. Yeah, it's not really done. <laughs> but a lot of the a lot of the hostility there is is sort of number one. It's a really valuable place to hold. Number two, there's a lot of different groups of people in a very small area, and. What's interesting is that this Ottoman incursion into the area is going to set up a lot of future uh, conflict in that one thing that I was always really curious about, again, when I was much younger, was why are there so many Muslims in the Balkans? Mm. It's all hung over from Ottomans holding territory in this area. A lot of those small groups actually have Turkish roots, like ethnically, mm-hmm. um, and, and obviously they're not held by turkey anymore but that stuff goes deep yeah so all of this raiding number one enriches the ottomans they start making tons of money because they basically go in and take all the treasure they start making a lot of money um they're also holding uh trade routes which is very valuable um number two all of this uncertainty and danger really starts weakening the byzantines further because they're losing territory left right and center and they have allies going like well, this whole arrangement between you and I, like when we're talking like vassal states rather than truly like Byzantine territory, mm-hmm. they're going like this, this, this arrangement is based on you protecting us. <laughs> you're not doing that. You're not, you're not doing that. We have firm evidence that you are unable <laughs> to do this for us. You see my dead brother over there? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Hey, hey, this state, it's exactly like us. It's like the same size very similar position they're ottoman now yeah why shouldn't we just join the ottoman empire uh without risking the bloodshed because you clearly were unable to actually protect them maybe it's better for us to just go willingly and at least then we have somebody who is militarily powerful enough to guarantee our safety and like logically yeah (laughs) it makes a lot of sense why wouldn't you 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 just you know right just pay the other guy the taxes (laughs) this is one of the most difficult situations that you can find yourself in as a larger empire in this era because you're never going to like actually hold all this territory and so a lot of your economic and military security come from your ability to convince allies that you are able to protect them yeah and the moment that you start showing weakness you get this snowball effect right the more that fall the more are going to leave on their own it's just going to happen faster and faster and all of a sudden you know, these states that would be like the first thing that an enemy would attack when going to war, that buffer isn't there anymore. These states who would provide some sort of economic boost to you, you're not getting that boost anymore. Yeah. You're very, very exposed when yeah, this happens. It's sort of, it sort of snowballs in on itself once you start losing. Yeah. And and this this sort of this sort of vassal system, um, you you depend so much on people who aren't under your direct control mm-hmm. uh, for your own success that you know, without it, you're you're in a lot of trouble. And that's where the Byzantines find themselves. In 1371, there's a battle uh, known, of the, known as the Battle of Maritza, where Serbia virtually collapses. Like, like it stops existing as as a as a Byzantine ally. And Serbia was one of the biggest allies that they had um, beyond uh, the Kingdom of Hungary. 
the Ottomans basically take over what is now Greece in the in the process. So now Byzantine Empire is surround, surrounded on multiple sides by Ottoman holdings, and they're in a lot of trouble. There are continued victories in Bulgaria, in uh, more in Serbia. Uh, Macedonia falls to the Ottomans, and Byzantine Empire just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until basically all that's left is just right around Istanbul. At the time, it was still Constantinople, wasn't it? Or had the, like I thought the name change came when the Ottomans took over. Uh, sorry, it is still Constantinople. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're correct. It doesn't really act, actually end up being called Istanbul um, primarily until the late 19th century. Oh, wow. Yeah, it continues being called... Uh, I, I might be a little bit off on that. Maybe it's uh, early 19th century. Um, but it continues being called Constantinople for, for some time after uh, the Ottomans take it over. Uh, there's a moderate setback for the Ottomans uh, around 1400. There's a there's kind of a rogue Mongol conqueror named Timur Lenk mm-hmm. uh, who invades and defeats an Ottoman army. It's the first major uh, <laughs> Ottoman defeat in some time. Like the Mongols do? Like they do. Um, he actually managed to kill the Sultan in the process. And it throws the country into disarray. There's a, a little over a decade of civil war basically trying to fi- uh, figure out who the next leader of the ottoman empire should be this is totally off topic but like dang the mongols were good at war they sure were yeah yeah, yeah like, absolutely real good yeah I, people keep asking me to do them as a topic like i i would love to at the same time like man i got other things to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> the time involved in putting that one together i don't know i'm sure it would turn out to be a great episode but i feel like it would kill me maybe for episode 200 honestly i i, I it has know. to be a special one or something honestly uh, yeah i will we'll do it eventually but Whew, that's a that's a daunting one. 1413, the Ottoman Empire reunites stronger than ever under uh, Mehmed the, the first, and he puts the country back together after the civil war and basically is like, okay, that's it, we're done. Mongols done. They're out of the country. He manages to drive them out. We're turning our our sights back on uh, the Byzantine Empire. Can you really be called an empire if you have a city? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure at what point you just start calling yourself the Byzantine city state, but it's like, it's it's kind of they, they went they went hard for so long. Yeah. Like I feel like they can have this. In 1451, Mehmed II takes uh, the throne, uh, Mehmed the Conqueror. Oh, and this is where that episode on the fall of Constantinople comes in real handy. It's worth a revisit. I, I get pretty in depth on all of this stuff. I like that one. It was a good episode. I think it turned out really well, especially for it being one of the one of the earlier ones. Um, the short version really is that at the age of twenty one, he uh, puts the seed, uh, the city of Constantinople under siege uh, in fourteen fifty three, and after a few months of. Uh, uh, artillery artillery attacks on the walls the and famously strong walls by the way walls that hadn't been taken in a very very long time um he manages to actually breach the walls using cannons so this is one of the i mean it's certainly not the first use of uh, of gunpowder but it's a it's a very um important early example of the way that gunpowder can really change uh the field of battle uh constantine the 11th paleologus um, either bravely charges into the troops and is never seen again, or uh, if you ask the Ottomans, was uh, cut down sneaking away like a coward by a, a kind of rank and file Ottoman soldier. Yeah. So, um, I mean, believe which one you will. <laughs> there was actually a, a sort of Arthurian legend that went along with the with the Greeks for some time that uh, he had sort of been uh, scooped up by angels after that last. 
uh, final charge and would someday come back to restore the glory of the empire. Oh yeah, sure. Which, hey, you know what? Why not? <laughs> I've heard I've heard crazier stories on some of these, but yeah, I mean, he was he was killed in battle one way or the other. I'm sure. Um, and with that, the 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 Ottomans had destroyed the last remnants of one of the greatest empires in in human history this is this is essentially the fall of the roman empire at this point the yeah. real fall of the it's roman empire it's actually gone now um Mahmed styles himself uh kaiser irum the roman emperor mm-hmm. um and uh settles in uh with his new uh his new empire uh ready to become the successor to the roman empire uh and considering himself potentially the world's greatest man in the process. So um, why don't we take a quick break right there? And when we come back, we'll talk about sort of the consolidation of power, the uh, the sort of final ma- mopping up, and the, uh, the growth and maturation of the early uh, Ottoman Empire. Sounds good. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Phil Downey. Hello. And when we finished up, uh, Constantinople had just fallen to the Ottoman Turks. Goodbye, and Constantinople. Goodbye, yeah, good, Byzantine Empire. Basically. Um, I mean, they're not they're not quite done. There's a couple of little holdout colonies here and there. But the first thing that Mehmed does uh, after getting himself established in Constantinople is, is start kind of hunting down and destroying these last little remnants. He really doesn't want any like any chance that the Greeks could be coming back for him. That's a smart move. Yeah. Um, basically, everything is destroyed by about 1461 or so. Mehmed was very, very focused on this idea of continuity with the Roman Empire, though. And this is a this is a really common theme in, in history. I mean, you and I specifically have talked about this a number of times, let alone... So many times. Let alone all of the, the guests that I've had on. There's this... There's this... Uh, this desperation for legitimacy that's seen in that continuity where they're going well you know the roman empire was the greatest empire i am head of roman empire therefore i am greatest emperor something along those lines i guess this actually segues into a question that i had sure uh i'm just getting foggy about my years mm-hmm. when did charlemagne's whole holy roman empire thing happen uh we're looking at uh, the ninth century. Okay, so that's long gone by now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're well past all of that. Yeah, the um, the landscape of um, Europe at this point is much closer to modern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say that it's it's very very modern, but you know, uh, the Kingdom of France is relatively um, close to what it is now. Um, Spain and Portugal are still kind of in the in the process of. Uh, like there's still the the four uh, kingdoms or whatever. We're a few decades away from that being consolidated. Mm-hmm. Germany is still a complete mess of various principalities and bishoprics and whatever under the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so you have that like 200 plus little tiny uh, places there. Um, Poland is really powerful right now. What else is going on? I- Italy is that mess of city states that are all kind of trading with yeah, uh, across the Italy. Uh, <laughs> across the the Silk Road. Italy's doing Italy. Yeah, Hungary is incredibly powerful at this point. Uh, Rome is, or sorry, Rome. Uh, uh, Russia is um, still fairly small. It hasn't started kind of spreading east yet. It's still very much like focused around Moscow and mm. and Ukraine and things like that. Um, yeah, I guess it's a bit of a 
a bit of a rundown, but yeah, we're we're a long ways past the uh, uh, you know Charlemagne holding you know all of uh, uh, Europe uh, or practically all of Western Europe at one point. Yeah, I was just wondering because it would have been <laughs> a big uh, contest to his claim of being the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. If mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> well, I, I mean, when when Charlemagne was was crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope, maybe by surprise. Uh, <laughs> You know, wink. Um, the the main the main contestant to that was the the you know the rulers of the Byzantine Empire who basically went, uh, we're still here, guys. Yeah, like we're 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 right over here. Um, it's interesting though. The rest of um, Europe actually wasn't that upset about the fall of Byzantium. They had a very strained relationship with with the Byzantine Empire. Um, n- number one, they were seen as like a failing empire by the time the the Ottomans came along. Like they, they seemed very unstable and they were kind of happy to see someone strong come along that could kind of keep control over the area. So they were, they were okay with that. There's also the fact that there had been the great schism in 1054, which is the, the split between, um, the, the Roman Catholic church and the, uh, Eastern Orthodox church. They, you know, had a big falling out. They excommunicated each other, yada, yada. We don't have to get into all the very, very tiny details <laughs> that exist there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they saw the destruction of Byzantium as a potential solution to what they saw as heresy, which is mm. a really kind of ruthless uh, uh, outlook on the whole thing. Yeah, seriously. Um, but they sort of saw it as a problem solved in a certain way. Um, at this point in time, the Eastern Orthodox Church was centered out of uh, Constantinople. The uh, the patriarch of the church was was based there, and not that uh, Europe was terribly friendly to Islam at that point in time, <laughs> um, but at least it was not seen as. And, and this is the kind of messed up part: Islam is seen as like another religion, and like they'll figure that out eventually. Don't worry about that kind of thing. Whereas uh, orthodoxy was seen as a Christian heresy, which yeah, was seen as almost trying to get like their own house house in order. Still, yeah, like it almost seemed as like like almost worse in a certain way because yeah. it was like a false Christianity rather than a completely different religion. Um, again, kind of hard to get your head in that space. Yeah. But keep in mind that there was actually a, a crusade where the uh, crusaders had turned against Constantinople. They they veered off and uh, held siege to Constantinople in the 13th century. Um, I want to say Fourth Crusade. I'll, I'll double check that. It's not. It, there was a lot of Crusades, man. Yeah, and uh, they all were super successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like that—that that kind of gives you an idea of like their relationship, the rest of Europe's relationship with uh, the Byzantine Empire. They were kind of okay with seeing it go down. Um, the idea of the sort of um tradition of rome or the or the heritage of rome didn't really mean as much to them as it used to because they have their own holy roman empire that they saw as a legitimate uh properly western christian uh uh, tradition to the empire to to the empire of rome so they sort of saw it as as less of a uh you know fall of an old tradition and more of like uh well as you said putting their house in order a little bit things are back to the way that they should be Mm -hmm. Mehmed, though, wasn't satisfied with only holding Byzantium because he saw how the rest of Europe treated that in terms of its legitimacy of a, of a tradition in, uh, for the Roman Empire. He actually decided that um, he wouldn't 
really be able to call himself uh, Roman until he actually held Rome itself. And so next he decided to set his sights on invading Italy. Okay. <laughs> By the way, interestingly enough, that issue with the, uh, with the Orthodox Church did not solve itself with, uh, with um, the, the defeat of the Byzantines. Yeah, didn't they move to Russia? Not initially. In fact, initially they stay in Byzantium, which is bizarre to me because the level of zealotry um, that the, the Turkish Muslims held was not really the, the sort of thing that we'll come to expect later uh, on in this story. They obviously, um, like on a state level, um, their, their state religion is, is Islam, but um, Mehmed was so focused on this like continuing uh, th this continuation and this legitimacy that he strikes a deal with the patriarchs uh, patriarch of the orthodox church um and allows him to remain in byzantium and oh, remain head of the orthodox church because he saw that as so intrinsic to the legitimacy of the byzantine empire and this is really astute on his part because he's he's realizing that or recognizing that there are multiple facets to Romanness, mm -hmm. and this is something that we've talked about um, actually in a couple of the Q and A episodes. But this idea that it's not just the political aspect of Romanness that counts; it's also the religious aspect, and that's meant different things over different centuries. And by the time uh, you get around to the 15th century and the defeat of Constantinople, part of what Romanness means, at least to Mehmed, is being the center of the Orthodox faith. Um, so he's he's so focused on that that he's willing to allow the patriarch to stay at least for now, um, which is kind of wild. Uh, that's a that's a bigger step than most empires would be willing to make at that point in time. Yeah, for sure. Under Mehmed, the city is like revitalized because it it had become like a ghost town before the uh, before even before the siege. Um, people saw the writing on the wall. The city was abandoned in droves. And we've talked about this in other topics where uh, Greek scholars moved into Italy, into these small uh, city-states. And there's like these scientific writings that are that are revitalized. Uh, you know, people rediscover uh, uh, Aristotle for the first time because they couldn't read it up until now or they get... Um, they just didn't have the Greek knowledge. And, and there's these Greek scholars that are like, yeah, I speak this every day. No problem. Let's get this translated. Is this sort of related to what kind of kicks off the Renaissance? Absolutely. It yeah. is. Yeah. This is, this is the, this is the impetus for uh, a, a good chunk of what, uh, what will become the re Renaissance that specifically like that focus on the classical world, this idea that there are three ages, there's this classical age, then there's this dark age. And then finally this third age of, of, of rebirth Renaissance, mm -hmm. uh, literally, um, that that's what is sort of uh, encourages that thinking about the structure of European history. Mm -hmm. um, it's all of these people who went, nope, I'm not sticking around for the for the Ottomans to defeat us. This sucks. Italy looks okay. Let's go. So again, this is this is more like what we talked about, where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that ties back in here. There's a lot of things that we kind of talk about having just happened that really are due to very active choices made by Ottoman leadership. Interesting. Um, I mentioned that Mehmed wanted to take Rome for his yes. legitimacy. Another thing that we often talk about uh, various topics as though it just sort of happened is, and, and I'm, I'm very guilty of this. This is, this is as much on me as anything else. Um, but let's say that this, the, the sources do not help is this idea of cutting off the silk road. Mm. There's this idea. And again, I, I, I haven't helped by perpetuating it that basically the, the 
the Ottomans just didn't like the Europeans, and so they were cutting this off just to hurt them economically. No, what they were trying to do was to starve Italy of resources uh-uh. for an upcoming invasion. That's... Because the main beneficiary of the Silk Road trade in Europe are the specifically the Genoese, but like a number of different uh, Italian um, city-states. So after 1453, Mehmed spends the next two decades or so consolidating power in the Balkans because it's a really good staging ground for sailing into, uh, like sailing across uh, into uh, Italy. Um, so he annexes Serbia in 1455. He annexes Bosnia in 1463. Um, and by 1480, they're ready to go. And they actually managed to invade uh, a place called Otranto in Italy. It's like right on the heel of the boot. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an excellent staging ground from uh, the Balkans. So they take it in 1480, and they're ready to go. But uh, Mahmoud II actually dies in 1481, and his successors decide that as important of a of a, a venture as that is to Mehmed, it's probably not the best thing for the Ottoman Empire as a whole. This yeah. is maybe a, a waste of resources for a very symbolic victory because in every other way, they really have replaced the Byzantine Empire. They hold a lot of the territory that the Byzantine Empire once held and then some. Um, they have managed to bring stability to an area that hasn't seen stability in quite a long time. Uh, they've managed to uh, replace the government of this area with a, a far more stable one. I mean, Byzantine is itself like an adjective that conveys like you know complexity for complexity's sake and like archaic traditions and inflexibility and there's a reason for that right like this empire was so wrapped up in traditions and uh revisions upon revisions upon revisions dating back over a thousand years that it, it had become a little bit paralyzed in dealing with a much more modern world uh you're you're bringing very much roman with an asterisk uh, uh, government <laughs> or governing systems uh, into a world that we're only four decades from finding the new world in Europe. That's kind of wild to think about. And there's, it's kind of understandable why that wasn't working out quite as well as it could. Yeah. The Crimean Khanate was established in 1475. So before uh, Mehmed died and still in this sort of like expansion and uh, consolidation period. And it's, it's, installed in Crimea, which is a little peninsula off of, uh, off of Ukraine. And the reason it's, uh, established is that there's a city there, uh, known as Kaffa and it's a Genoese colony. And the Genoese would sail from Genoa, Geneva, uh, all the way through the Black Sea and up to the Sea of Azov on the Crimea. Mm -hmm. And this city is where they would start a lot of their trade over land. That's how the Ottomans were so easily able to cut off this trade, they simply closed the Dardanelles to any Italian traffic. Mm. Kaffa is also, interestingly enough, uh, famously the city that the Black Plague probably entered Europe through. So, Fun. Quite the history there. <laughs> this colony becomes like a vassal state up on the Sea of Azov for the Ottoman Turks, and it's actually going to be quite successful for quite some time. It's also going to be a bit of a thorn in the side of uh, what's becoming the the uh, the Russian Empire. The Russian Empire is going to be constantly in contest with various Turkish groups, but the Ottomans are by far the most powerful. 
after abandoning efforts in Italy, uh, further expansion takes place into what's now the Middle East. So in 1516, they managed to conquer Syria, uh, as well as Egypt, from what's known as the Mamluk Sultanate. And it really shifts their sort of vector of expansion into that area of the world, because what they do at that point in time, because they're so close to the Arabian Peninsula, is they actually declare protection over the two holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And this is important because it gives them uh, a much greater influence over the uh, the Muslim world in that they have now established themselves or declared themselves as like holy protectors as well as kind of a political power. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also requires them as a political power to bring themselves more in line with Islamic values because they're not going to be able to hold that territory very easily without demonstrating that they are sort of morally able to protect it as well yeah. as uh, uh, politically or militarily. And so you start seeing a little bit more of a shift towards a, a, a fully Islamic uh, uh, empire at this point. 1520, uh, this is a name that you'll probably recognize. Suleiman the Magnificent begins yep. his reign. Wearing an onion hat. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> it was a very popular style of time, to be fair. <laughs> I recognize him from Civilization as well, actually, now that I think about it. Oh, yeah, he's in there for sure. Yeah. Um, The reason he's known as Magnificent is because he goes hard at the expansion. He really keeps up what, you know, has already been taking place, but he kind of takes it to the next level. You'll you'll see that a lot, actually, with um, leaders that are known for uh, their expansion or their military success. Often they follow somebody who basically had everything ready to go and for whatever reason wasn't able to execute. Um, the main uh, example that comes to mind is, is Alexander the Great. Um, he didn't show up as a teenager with like the largest military in the world for like no reason. Like his dad had been preparing for like two decades to go, yeah, to I, go a conquering and he just kind of took over. the one who pulled the trigger. Yeah, exactly. Suleiman though turns his eyes to back, back to Europe and uh, starts going that way again. Specifically, the Kingdom of Hungary, as we talked about before, the, the Kingdom of Hungary was actually very, very powerful at this point in time. Um, that's another one that would be interesting to do, you know, focus on that one at some point, because uh, it does come up so often and was so powerful. Um, but that's not our topic today, because in 1526, uh, the kingdom is invaded by the Ottomans and their king, uh, Louis II, is, is killed. And this triggers civil war within Hungary. Uh, the state is divided. There's a uh, there's a battle uh, known as I'm probably saying this wrong because Hungarian is one of those languages. Mm. Um, it's one of the few that's uh, independent in the area, isn't it? Yeah, interestingly enough, it's not a Romance language nor yeah. a Slavic language. It's, it's just its, its own thing. Yeah, uh, its linguistic family family is virtually unconnected to uh, at least until you go way 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 back. But Magyar is. Um, extremely distinct from other languages, which yeah. is kind of interesting. So anyway, this is probably wrong, but the Battle of Mohawks, M-O-H-A-C-S, I don't know. Um, this battle is known basically as the end of independent Hungary. This basically ends the kingdom. It's so uh, uh, difficult for uh, the kingdom. It's it's one of the most significant battles in Eastern European history. What year are we in here? Uh, this is 1526. Okay. So... 
I mean, it's very rare that a single battle actually kind of ends the situation altogether, so it's going to take a little while to resolve all of this. But by 1541, the Ottomans basically uh, annex a, a good chunk of, of Hungary. The Hungarians were actually supported, interestingly enough, by the Austrian Habsburgs, mm-hmm. um, who had some interest in the Kingdom of Hungary at this point in time. Oh, those Hasber- Habsburgs. Yeah, they, they show up everywhere. Um, they end up actually keeping perhaps 30% of the former kingdom, um, and it ends up sort of a protected kingdom of Hungary under uh, Habsburg rule. And this is where you're going to see things like, well, number one, in the Thirty Years' War, you're going to see a connection between Austria and, and Hungary in terms of how the players shake out in that. And number two, you'll notice probably when we talk about you know World War One history, say. The, the kingdom of Austria-Hungary, yep. this is the very, very beginnings of that connection. I was going to say, this is a term I've heard before. Mm-hmm. The rest of the country is actually kind of split between the Ottomans and Transylvania, which is a fairly uh, powerful um, uh, state at this point in time. But most of it goes to the Ottomans. Uh, The city of Buda is actually taken by the Ottomans. Uh, At this point, Buda and Pest are two separate cities. I don't know if you were aware that that was a thing. I did know that. Yeah, they were only incorporated uh, fairly recently, actually, within the last 150 years or so. Mm. Um, I might be wrong on that. I'll double check, but it, it's it's a relatively uh, recent thing. They're they're on opposite uh, they're on opposite sides of a river. I think it's the Volga River, um, and yeah, they're they're essentially separate cities. Even when you go now, they have kind of different flavors to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, anyways, holding the the former capital of of Hungary is a pretty decisive blow, and it it establishes the Ottomans quite strongly in. Uh, the Balkan region, uh, like we talked about earlier, this sort of sets up a um, traditionally Islamic uh, population in the area, and to the point where a lot of um, the population in that region to this day have, uh, to some degree, Turkish ancestry. Mm. In 1534, extending the other way, and this is part of what makes Suleiman so interesting, is that he managed to fight these two very, very uh strong fronts at the same time which is not an easy thing to do uh in 1534 um baghdad is captured from the safavid empire safavids were uh the latest fr- flavor of persian sure. uh, at the risk of being a little bit dismissive um there's a lot of different persians over the the course of history but um they were quite powerful and um once they fall uh further campaigns uh in the east end up extending into uh uh, what is now the country of Georgia, uh, Azerbaijan, and it's sol- uh, it solidifies borders uh, on the east side. And what it allows, actually, um, and, and partially this is this is one of the reasons that not all Safavids were necessarily uh, anti-Ottoman, is it allows Shia uh, Safavids to make the pilgrimage um, to Mecca, and this is a really big deal for them because there's actually a um, <laughs> it's it's interesting how these things come up once in a while in history because this is at the same time a a very powerful motivating factor and also one that we might not necessarily consider the most logical. There had been a curse placed on uh, Sunni or uh, on Sunni caliphs by uh, the Shia because they weren't able to make the pilgrimage. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the, the pilgrimage to Mecca, at least once in your life, if you're able, is one of the five pillars of Islam. It's extremely, extremely important in that religion. Uh, preventing them militarily from making that 
that pilgrimage just because they were Shia seemed like a good idea to them. And I mean, uh, the politics between Shia and Sunni Muslims, that's a, that's a whole different topic. We don't need to necessarily delve into. It gets no. quite complicated. You don't have time. <laughs> um, but what it what, what the Ottomans are essentially doing, uh, you know, to, to try and put a button on this very complicated topic is bring some level of at least uh, mutual tolerance between the two groups mm -hmm. by providing a relatively neutral well, literal pathway for Sunni, uh, sorry, Shia Muslims to make the pilgrimage and fulfill their religious uh, duties. On one hand, it's just a nice thing to do. On the other hand, it becomes a politically and militarily important thing to do because it neutralizes one of uh, a, a very a, a very important and very real reason that they have a very powerful enemy working mm. against them. It's an astute move. It makes a lot of sense. Also, probably just a decent thing to do. Um, but up until this point, the the conflict between those two groups had been. Um, I'm trying to think of a an appropriately strong enough word, um, but it had been intense. horrible. Yeah, it had been very <laughs> intense. And and so extending the olive branch a little bit in this manner is, is a, is a really important thing. And yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how it has like very real impact on, um, uh, on political and military, uh, issues, but now Baghdad and, uh, the Safavid empire in general, um, What's left of it now? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's been Baghdad has been captured, and Baghdad is an incredibly historically important city. Um, and the Safavid Empire now becomes um, much less of an enemy on their eastern borders. They also annex the Barbary Coast. And do you know anything at all about the Barbary Coast? Even one word? No? I feel like I should be able to come up with something, but no. Pirates. That, that was going to be the thing, but I wasn't sure. And yep. I was like, I don't want to sound dumb. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Uh, pirates. It's known for it's known for piracy. Yes. It's always been a, a hotbed for piracy. Um, it still is. It's wild how certain areas of the world just kind of keep doing their thing. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they take the Barbary Coast is, number one, now the pirates stop attacking them. Number two, now they have a navy. Ah, uh, it gives the Ottoman Navy quite a bit of strength, and it also gives them a strong presence both in the Mediterranean and in the Persian Gulf, two very important uh, strategic mil uh, uh, naval holdings. Remember how we talked about the fact that uh, Europe in general was pretty okay with the... Um, with the Ottoman Empire when they first took over? Not so much anymore. They're not so much okay with them anymore. Uh, number one, they still hold the Holy Land. This is kind of a problem. Number two, uh-oh, Mediterranean's being taken over by them. Yeah. This is kind of traditionally a really important thing. The Italians are being choked out uh, uh, economically. I mean, by this time, you're seeing other nations finding other routes to the east, but it's not as cheap. Yep. And despite the fact that uh, 1481, the the sort of plans to invade it, Italy uh, had been abandoned. They hadn't really like reinstated the Silk Road just out of like the goodness of their hearts. Yeah. Um, the Ottomans don't really have that much of a historical cultural reason to have goodwill towards uh, towards Europe. Uh, if anything, they've they've scrapped for every tiny bit of. Uh, influence they've managed to ever get from Europe. Yeah, and they kind of came up out of nowhere, really. Like, they 
managed to get what did you say it was uh iran originally mm-hmm. and then they well, fought their way back from that. that 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 was the seljuk turks actually Still, but, but, but I mean, their like, predecessors yeah yeah like that's that's how it got started mm-hmm. it's like they just fought and fought and fought mm-hmm. and they had to scrap together every bit they've got so far yeah no one really gave them anything on that yeah. one uh that being said not every european power is like super upset with them for example france is not terribly bothered by them being there i mean other than the fact that they're a, a, a strongly catholic nation and there's some boy in 1536s there's some religious stuff going on <laughs> uh in fact he, he's looking at that as a reason to potentially ally with uh the ottomans and this is the first time you actually see some uh incorporation of the ottomans into the european power structure as an ally rather than an enemy mm. in 1536 he allies with suleiman against Charles V uh, of Spain, the Holy Roman Emperor, because um, we, we talked about this a lot in the um, uh, 30 Years War episode, actually. Um, the Habsburgs hold both Spain and uh, Austria, and there's a bunch of uh, mess that happens there due to the due to the Reformation. And yeah, there's... there's Anyways, what you get um, between France and the Habsburgs is that on one hand, they're both Catholic nations, and so they're supposed to be allies. On the other hand, politically and militarily, they're bitter rivals. Mm-hmm. And so when you get into these religious wars in Europe, they're in a weird spot because on one hand, they want to fight the Habsburgs. On the other hand, everything else is falling out over religious lines. And so what do you do? You bring in the one player that doesn't have skin in that game, ah. the Ottomans. This shows that the Ottomans are being accepted into the religion or to, into the European power structure, not in a good way by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are seeing this as a threat, um, but some people are seeing them as a potential ally. In but like only an ally as last of, of last resort, they're still still seen as kind of outsiders. Mm-hmm. But they're there. They're definitely there, and people are realizing that they're there to stay. Around this time, Ottoman expansion slows somewhat. They've firmed up borders basically everywhere that it looks like they're going to be uh, uh, extending. Um, in the northwest, they're bumping up against Austria with you know the, the Austrian kingdom of Hungary. Mm-hmm. They can't really go a lot further there. Uh, in the east, they're running up against Persia, against the Safavids. Um, yes, they took Baghdad, but like they're not really going to be able to go any further there. That's fine. They solidify borders. Mediterranean, there's not a lot more to take there. They've sort of gone down into Egypt as far as they're going to be able to go. Um, and that's fine. That's part of the maturation cycle of an empire, right? Sooner or later, you hit that spot where you're not going to be easily able to gobble up thousands and thousands of acres of land. Mm-hmm. It didn't take long for all these other uh, nations to find other routes to the east. Um, Portugal found, or, or Portugal managed around the Cape of Good Hope in 1488. Um, so they decided that the easiest way is to just go all the way around Africa and sail back up to India. What comes from that, though, is that you get some naval wars between the Ottomans and the Portu- Portuguese in the Indian Ocean mid-16th century, because the Ottomans are like, hey, what are you doing? Uh, I know you just sailed, like, literally halfway around the world to get here but this is also our territory yeah you couldn't go through nice try <laughs> you couldn't go through on one side what makes you think you can go through on the other side nothing major comes of it but there's a lot of like naval battles you know scrapping for right of passage in this uh in this era mm-hmm. it's not just the borders that result in some sort of uh slowing of the growth there's something known as the price revolution 
And basically what that means is that between the late 1400s and the early 1600s, for a variety of different reasons, and we don't need to get all into all of that because economics is... <laughs> yep. Anyways. Next. <laughs> essentially what happens is that over about 100 to 150 years, there is a six times price increase uh, over that period due to inflation. You're just going to say this sounds uh, mighty in, in, inflation-y. Yeah. Uh, there, there's got to be a better way to flirt phrase that. but Largely due to an influx of precious metals from the new world. Ah, that makes sense. All that uh, Mexican silver is flowing back in through Spain. And we did not understand economics for a very, very, very <laughs> long time. And it was kind of confusing how bringing in all this silver made the silver less valuable somehow. What's going on there? Uh, you know, there's other factors. Now there's more of it. There's other factors in terms of production abilities, in terms of population growth, and sometimes decrease due, due to uh, various plagues. Uh, yeah, we, we get into all sorts of really boring stuff there that I'm just not going to address. Just gloss right over it. But what it means is that all of these powers, including the Ottoman Empire, have to contend with the fact that money is simply worth less. Yeah. Uh, and it really slows down their growth. They don't really know how to deal with that. Russian expansion also uh, limits expansion northward into um, modern-day Russia, especially uh, Ivan the Fourth, also known as Ivan the Terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically goes like, what are these Turks doing down in Crimea? I want Crimea. And those two uh, powers go to war um, pretty much right away. Now, uh, the Crimean Khanate is vigorously defended by the Ottoman Empire, but it draws a lot of resources away from other areas that they have been working in. And that area area is eventually going to be taken over by Russia, but will remain culturally Turkish for a very long time. It does spread a lot of uh, Turkish people um, around the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea, um, and it's going to result in uh, Turkish uh, ancestors for a lot of those places that they had originally come from, but it kind of has like a reinjection of Turkish peoples into those areas. In the 1550s, all those powers that are kind of less okay with the Ottoman Empire being uh, in their area decide to make a coalition to try and reclaim the Mediterranean from Ottoman interests. How does um, that go? You know what? Surprisingly, they managed to defeat the Ottoman Navy at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. They were very, very happy about it. The Ottomans didn't much care yeah that doesn't like they just got the the navy from the barbary coast like it's like all right we lost that their comment on the matter is that the europeans have merely shaved off our beard (laughs) which i think is it's so evocative yeah it seems like such a big deal it seems so it seems like such a blow it seems so uh such like a drastic change they'll just grow it back Mm, it's just a beard just a beard uh i I love it quite a bit (laughs) Yeah, really, it was mostly symbolic. It didn't have uh, major changes in the area, but uh, other than the Ottomans learned to watch it back there, it was very, very much of a, it was very much a best not miss kind of situation, and oh, they missed. Mm-hmm. This slowdown in economic growth and in, in, in uh, geographic growth, I suppose, results in uh, a stagnant uh, population growth as well. Um, and they kind of, the Ottoman Empire kind of evens out at around 30 million people in the year 1600. It's a substantial population at this point in time. The various sultans uh, in this era are uh, ruling over like a, like a pretty large 
uh, group of people and a very diverse uh, group of people, which is really interesting. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, is there still a concept of Turkish identity? Yeah, absolutely. But it's very much uh, married to a, a concept of, of Ottoman identity, which, mm. is, which is two different things. And what they've had to do... Uh, due to all these various growths is very much uh, develop a system that is going to be mirrored by other um, empires later on in European history, which is that there is a core Ottoman state identity, which is Turkish, which uh, speaks Turkish languages, which uh, practices Islam, which, um, you know, is, is ruled in a certain manner, but also incorporates lots of different people who do all of those things quite differently. And that's okay to some extent. It doesn't mean that they're given uh, full or equal citizenship to um, uh, proper Ottoman Turks, I suppose you could say. But they can exist within the borders and they can exist peacefully and even successfully uh, in a lot of cases. Now, it, it is tiered. I mean, uh, slavery exists in the Ottoman Empire, for example, and it's almost always uh, non-Turkish people who are slaves. Mm. Um, you know, keep in mind it is it is different than, you know, chattel slavery in, in North America. There's slave rights. There are uh, terms of slavery, things like that. But you know, slavery, nonetheless, let's not sugarcoat slavery, maybe. Yeah, um, let's not. Let's not. Uh that's one example. Uh, there's there's a lot of things where, for example, Christians have um, fewer political rights. Um, there's uh, uh, groups like the um, uh, uh, the Janissaries. I'm not sure if you ever heard of the the Janissary Fighting Corps. Yeah. So the Janissaries also probably from civilization. <laughs> probably the Janissaries are a really interesting group in that they um, they actually mirror the Roman legions in a lot of ways. Possibly unintentionally, because the sort of the course of their their, their history mirrors it uh, in good and bad. Um, when the Janissaries start out, what they did was they um, kidnapped Christian children uh, and raised them from you know from from very very young to be number one extremely effective fighters and number two extremely devout Muslims. Uh, they their their days in, uh, consisted entirely of religious instruction and and military instruction and they started out as like a, a personal bodyguard to the sultan which is exactly how the uh like the the highest echelons of the the roman legions started out mm. um the i am forgetting the name legionaries i guess um legionaries yeah uh, i'll add something in there this is gonna <laughs> drive me bonkers um oh it's the um the praetorian guard okay yeah. that's what i was looking for so yeah, very similar to the Praetorian Guard, where it's like this is this is a personal bodyguard for the emperor. It's the best fighters, like the best of the best fighters. It's it's uh, very difficult to get in. There's a very small number. They're they're extremely effective, etc. And then it expands from that to like uh, elite unit within the army, and then it expands into like a good chunk of the army and things like that. And they realize that they have like a lot of military power, like even in, uh, compared to the rest of the, um, in, in, in comparison to the rest of the army, they have, they're, they're quite effective and could potentially take on like the standard troops if they needed to. And this can result sometimes in like internal conflicts where the Praetorians or the Janissaries can basically go, we want this guy to be the next emperor and we'll fight anybody who says otherwise. Yikes. And sometimes it comes down to fighting and they win and they actually install that guy. And that's exactly what happened with the Praetorian Guard as well in, in Roman history. Mm. Um, 
but they had absolutely no qualms about going like, well, yep, go find the strongest Christian boys you can, uh, tear them from their families and, and raise them in this tradition. And it's not as though like they're the only country that did things like this at this time. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to, to imply that it's, uh, uh, unusually cruel for this po- this period, but also clearly they had less rights than uh, than uh, Muslim citizens, for example. Yeah. But they managed to effectively uh, include people who were Eastern Orthodox into their society uh, that that were often very successful, even in uh, uh, military or political posts at certain times. Yeah, it's 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 this idea of taking all of these different kinds of people and going like, well, we just have to deal with the fact that they exist in our uh, in our space, we can't necessarily just kick them all out uh, or kill them all. Uh, that's something that's going to be a model for, for example, the later Austria, uh, uh, Kingdom of Austria-Hungary. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen like a, an ethnic map of Austria-Hungary. I have not. Uh, it is a modeled mishmash of colors. It is <laughs> There are many, many dozens of types of people there that they tried to uh, rule with these sort of spheres of influence rather than uh, a firm um, prescriptive uh, uh, model of citizenship. So where does that put the Ottoman Empire sort of at its most mature point? It reaches its largest geographic size of all time in 1683. And yes, it's occasionally got internal unrest for many reasons. I mean, for, for for a single power to contain both or I was going to say both, but it's more than two things. To, to have a single power contain the Balkans, as well as the Arabian Peninsula and, and you know Mecca and Medina, as well as Jerusalem, as well as uh, Baghdad, as well as yeah, uh, up until Crimea. Like, that's a lot of... area. That's a lot of really important places for various reasons. Some geographic, some uh, religious, uh, uh, some economic. Uh, that's, that's a really difficult thing to... Uh, rule effectively and and yes un, uh, you know internal unrest happened like a lot like a lot but the fact that they managed to navigate it astutely is is kind of remarkable as well and a lot of that comes from that original base in persian governing tactics where persia traditionally is kind of the same way they tended to be at least in relative terms religiously tolerant in terms of um you know eth- different ethnicities under their umbrella relatively tolerant they learned that it doesn't really necessarily help things to homogenize things as much as possible. Mm. And yes, it's harder to rule different kinds of people, but it can also sometimes bring uh, uh, certain benefits and it's worth at least trying. So by the 17th century, the, the major thing that you'll notice politically is that the sultans were doing less like hands-on ruling. There's a lot more power devolved to uh, viziers for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, overseeing uh, uh, smaller territories. And that's kind of just a necessity with a, a territory that big. And one of their biggest problems, uh, at least militarily speaking, was this focus on historical enemies, especially Austria. The containment of the Ottoman Empire by the Habsburgs was seen as like a black eye on their very understandable uh, reverence for Suleiman mm. because it was like the one thing that he didn't completely destroy. Yeah. Um, and so he, they kept going to war with 
Austria over and over again. Even when it wasn't necessarily advantageous in any way other than I mean, there their were, honor? There were always reasons. There, sure. There are always reasons. There's what's known as the Great Turkish War. It goes from 1683 to 1699. Now notice we said 1683, top of their uh, geographic uh, um, expansion. There's a reason that those two dates line up. Yeah. This war, they, they attempt a siege of Vienna. They actually get as far as the city of Vienna itself, but it's turned back by allied enemy forces. Again, these Europeans are so fed up with the Ottomans making inroads that they're willing to sometimes put big differences aside in order to defend against the Ottomans. So you get a, an Austrian, German, and Polish force that comes out to uh, defend Vienna against the Ottomans. And uh, they manage to do so. It ends uh, with, with what's known as the uh, the Treaty of Karlovitz, which um, forces the Ottomans to cede territory uh, to Austria for the first time in a really long time. And that includes all of Ottoman Hungary. Uh -oh. They have to give it back. And this is not a good look for them. No. What's more, Egypt and Algeria, which are very, very different places than like the central Turkish yeah, identity. For sure. But are under, uh, uh, under Ottoman rule at this point. Start to assert soft independence. They're still technically Ottoman, but they start doing things their own way a little bit. Mm. There isn't really like a roadmap to independence at this point in time. You don't have a French Revolution to model things after. Sure. So they kind of did the best that they could. Similarly, Russia, you know, you're, you're getting occasional success with skirmishes with Russia, but the Ottomans always agreed to peace terms with Russia really easily. And what that shows is that they were really unwilling to go toe to toe with Russia. They were afraid of Russia. All of that sort of looks like uh, an empire that's more interested in peace and continuity than necessarily asserting power. And this is the biggest shift over the 17th century. They're kind of done pushing out. They're more interested in pushing back when people push on them. Mm. This is sometimes construed as stagnation. You see other conflicts at this point in time, like they went to war with Catherine uh, the First of Russia, 1735 to 39. The Russians gain uh, a port uh, at the Sea of Azov. So they're they're taking um, like hard control of that Crimean Khanate. Yeah. Um, but it gave the Ottoman Empire peace, which they were happy to take. But during that peace, um, Austria and, and Russia were able to uh, uh, deal with the rise of Frederick the Great in Prussia. I have a question that yeah. I probably should have asked ages ago, but I was just so enraptured by the story. You've mentioned Crimean Khanet. Yes. What What is Khanet? Is that the name of the the area, or Khanet is, that is a... like a kingdom? Okay. But it's derived from the word Khan. I gotcha. Uh, the Mongolian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, I just I just said a bunch of stuff like it means something. Let's let's actually dig <laughs> into it a little bit. Sure. So, the Ottoman Empire is at war with Russia at the same time that Frederick the Great in Prussia is basically putting Prussia on the map like it, it, the um, the expansion of Prussia under under uh, Frederick the Great is well there's a reason that he's called Frederick the Great and Prussia is part of modern Germany yes northern Germany yeah. uh, this is the this is the core of Germany that will become um, modern Germany Prussia is the kingdom that pushed for uh, unification uh, in the 19th century Prussia is known for its like military prowess. One of your earliest episodes was about this topic. I yeah, believe. the second the second topic we ever did. Yeah, um, we didn't talk about Frederick other than kind of in passing, but um, yeah, he's a he's a big figure in German history. 
this you know that's the point where prussia starts taking over as like before that austria was basically the only germanic uh kingdom that well not not the only but like the primary germanic uh kingdom um that sort of existed as like a uh main bastion of of german um identity because it's more about being holy roman empire than it is about specifically german fair um prussia sort of uh forges its own way a little bit so there the ottomans are at war with russia at the same time that prussia is coming up which is a major threat to russia but instead of of uh allying with uh prussia against two traditionally um really formidable uh, uh ottoman um enemies uh Austria and Russia, the Ottoman Empire takes a really easy way out with a a defense treaty, allowing Austria and Russia to team up against Prussia and contain their their spread. And it's kind of like, well, I mean, there are reasons, obviously there's, there's reasons, but like there is a previous version of Ottoman Empire that sends envoys to to Prussia and says, let's do this thing. And that didn't happen. And so you, you see that character of the of the empire have it definitely have matured over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's not as though they would never win a battle again, but it's like you get you get little things here and there at this point in time. Stalled progress with technology. Um, you know, they're slow to adopt the printing press. They're slow to adopt uh, artillery, like modern artillery in this in this period of time that people are going like, well, there it is. Like they've lost their touch. And that's yeah. not necessarily fair or accurate, but. It's also easier to paint these things in, in, you know, wide strokes. It's also a time of innovation. I mean, they reform the government image in terms of uh, the structure of it, making sure that it's a little bit more fair, um, incorporating. I mean, we're, we're a long way from democracy, but incorporating um, slightly more uh, methods of appeal for, for citizens to the government rather than just being sort of a very top-down authoritarian body. Is this common in governments of the time or? Yeah, we're coming up on the French Revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, you, you got to make some changes. Yeah. Um, you also see the first private businesses in this era. So, yeah. you know, to, to say that they're not doing anything is, is just not true at all. Now, Russian aggression begins anew in 1768. 1768 uh, Catherine II comes along. This is the Catherine the Great. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, for reasons. Yep. The Seven Years' War had just ended in 1763, and France was financially exhausted by it. That's actually one of the precursors to the French Revolution, is is how poor France was after that. And Catherine went, well, I want all of Crimea. Like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're done messing around with the Crimean Khanate. I want all of it. Wallachia and Moldova, or Moldavia basically split right off of the Ottoman Empire. They had been part of it for uh, a couple of centuries, but they basically went, well, we want religious freedom and we don't feel like the uh, the Ottoman Empire is offering enough of it. When was Vlad around? Oh. This is, before, this is way after his time, isn't it? way after his time, yeah. I just, he said Wallachia uh, and I was like, 15th, 15th, 15th century, I believe. <laughs> yeah. The French Revolution also comes up, uh, destabilizing things in Europe. 1798 the french uh invade egypt this is the this is the yeah, egyptian know. expedition by uh, napoleon oh yes okay yeah i did know this happened yes basically the the french government told uh, napoleon to come home from italy and he said no i'm going to egypt instead <laughs> and well what were they going to do to stop him yeah so the french and uh british fought it out in egypt for a while this is where you get the rosetta stone all sorts of fun stuff over there but the fact is the ottoman empire lost egypt yeah 
uh, there was a Serbian revolution in 1804. Uh, 1804 to 1835, actually. And Russian-backed Serbia manages to win independence from the Ottoman Empire and all of this. They actually managed to create a constitution for themselves. Uh, they wouldn't be truly independent, like completely independent until the 1860s, which involves, you know, recognition by other nations and things like that. But sure. that was functionally it. Yeah. Um, and then finally you get to uh, 1821, uh, the Greek War of Independence begins, backed by Russia, Great Britain, and France. Greece had been under other people's rules for rule for a very long time. In fact, there had never really been, you know, we talk about Greece historically as though it was an actual country and never was. It was more, more of, of a, a culture. Yeah. Um, they decided that they were tired of being under other cultures, especially other cultures that were nothing like what they wanted their own culture to be. I mean, it was one thing under the Byzantine Empire where they really shaped the culture in a lot of ways. Um, they've been under the Ottoman Empire for, you know, 400 plus years now and still managed to retain a, a distinctly Greek culture, which is interesting and, and admirable, but like also very hard. Yeah. Um, and by 1830, they managed to become an independent kingdom uh, of, of Greece. And it's around this time that they start referring to the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe. Mm -hmm. The name is one of those like both very fair and very unfair things. They were having problems. Yeah. Who wasn't? Right. I mean, this is one French of the French most... Revolution just kind of <laughs> right. It gave a bunch of people oh, Lord words. It gave a bunch of people ideas. Yeah, this is one of the most volatile periods in in European history. Uh the fact that they were feeling it too um, kind of shows the fact that they were held to a very double standard, yeah. like super double standard. And there's still a lot of Ottoman history left. Uh, they, they've, they've scrapped pretty hard for what they've got so far. So um, I think we, we'll, we'll stop around here because we've got some bigger stuff that I want to get into hard. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to see it go from such a dynamic culture to um, a, a, an old, well-established one. It almost mirrors what they were up against with the Byzantine Empire in certain in certain aspects. Yeah. Um, so when we come back, we'll talk about uh, Ottoman attempts to uh, reorganize and modernize in order to kind of deal with the um, the the birth of the modern world in Europe, and we'll uh, take it from there. Nice. Sounds good. The height of the Ottoman Empire saw it begin to mirror the Byzantine Empire it replaced, both part of Europe and not, trying to balance diverse traditions and rapidly accelerating innovations, and beginning to falter. Next time on HI101, we'll look at the efforts of Ottoman leadership to address these shortcomings. That episode will be up sometime soon. I know this one is a little bit late, but unfortunately it couldn't really be helped, so we're going to do our best to catch back up. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. 
I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.